Good to go? Yep. Okay, showtime. Welcome to the show, folks. I'm Brent Holland. For all of you that are walking your dog before going to bed, look skyward. When you do, don't be afraid if you see something strange darting across the sky. You see, according to our guest tonight, UFOologist Cheryl Costa, statistics show when people walk their dogs and gaze skyward, well, that's when most UFOs are spotted. There are going to be a lot of surprises in store for you tonight about unidentified flying objects that you didn't know before. Tonight we're going to look at a new book by Cheryl Costa and her co-author Linda Miller. Costa entitled UFO Sightings Desk Reference United States of America 2001 to 2015. This is the perfect night folks. It's raining out there. I can hear the the pellets hitting the window of the studio as we do the show. Skype is solid right now. Get in your most comfy chair. Pull a comforter up. Get the coffee going. Get the tea going or a beverage of your choice. Settle back and relax. Take this time for yourself. Shell Costa is a two-service military veteran. Thank you for your service once again, Cheryl. A retired aerospace security engineer and published writer and playwright, Cheryl has a weekly newspaper blog that you're going to want to check out. Write this down. It's a web blog titled New York Skies, and it's for the SyracuseNewTimes.com. New York Skies for SyracuseNewTimes.com. And of course, that link will be on our website. For the past four years, she has written lively accounts of the subject of historical UFO sightings in New York, UFO statistics, disclosure, and other UFOlogy topics. Cheryl is a native and resident of upstate New York. Actually, she lives just in Syracuse, just across the river from me, the St. Lawrence River, that is, just down the road about an hour and a half. Go Orangeman about an hour and a half south from where we broadcast from in Kingston. Cheryl has been a speaker at the International UFO Congress and at the MUFON Symposium. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from the State University of New York and Empire State College in entertainment writing. She is a Vietnam vet. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the show, Cheryl Costa. Cheryl, how are you tonight? I'm excellent. Excellent, excellent. Well, you look terrific. There's this glow around you. It's very nice. It's very nice to see you. Um, I should tell folks, last time we were on, we started off with UFOs, and then Cheryl said she was a Vietnam vet and posted in Vietnam. So we ended up talking about being a Vietnam vet, and you can find that show in the www.nightfrightshow.com archives, or simply just Google Night Fright Show. Show cost and that'll come up tonight. I, I gotta, promised. I got to tell you something. Please go ahead. I, I've had people walk up to me in the parking lot of Wegman Supermarket and tell me I saw you on the Brent Howland show. <laughs> Way to go! Congratulations. I don't mean for me. You know, I just do this thing as a volunteer thing. This is just to get the information out to folks, and then they can decide what they want to do with it. But congratulations, and most deservedly so, because you risked your life. And you also gave service to the country. And this is something that is imperative to get across to the students that are listening right now. Service to others. That's when you set yourself free. That's when you set yourself free. It's not all about yourself. And that's so important. And that's what Cheryl brings. She brings inspiration. And that's why she's on the show. Tonight we're going to be looking at UFOs. Um, Unidentified flying objects. Now, right away, I can hear everybody going, oh, you know, what a kooky subject and all this stuff. Wait a second now. WWT, which means, whoa, whoa. I can't tell you that word because I just realized it's a French word that, that, that kind of cusses. Uh, it means take it easy for a second. Repose. There's a better word. Relax. I had Jane Goodall on this show. And she shocked me. She told me she believed in Bigfoot. So there's something out there, folks. There's mysteries in this world, and that's what we're going to look at, the possibilities of something more than we entertain in everyday life. And Cheryl's the perfect guide for us tonight. Cheryl, last time we spoke, we started off by talking about your first experience at 12. Can you reiterate that story for us? Uh, okay, it was about 1965. 
uh, it was probably about two weeks before school started, late August. And it was a Sunday afternoon. We were coming down from my aunt and uncle's house up in Savona, New York, a little bit south of Bath, New York. And uh, clear, clear blue sky as far as you could see. And suddenly my mother had my father pull the car off this side of the road. And I said, what's wrong? And she pointed out this silver ball parked out there in the sky. And uh, to give people perspective, uh, hold your arm out at arm's length and look at your fingernail. That's a little fingernail. That's about how big it was, you know. And uh, it was uh, it was big. And uh, she explained to me it might be something the Air Force was doing, the NASA might be doing. It might be people from another world. And to a 12-year-old, that was very interesting, you know. And we talked about it for about 10, 15 minutes. And she had my father get back, get the car back on the road. And we went went down, turned onto the state highway, crawled up in the back of the, the, the back window of that Chevy Impala. And I watched thing for the next 10, maybe 15 minutes. And when it decided to go, it was like something in the movies. It was like a gone. You know, it's funny because right away I'm thinking you're in the back because I've done that too when I was a kid. I got in the, you know, between the window and the back seat and just curled up in there and we would drive from Montreal to Toronto. Or you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that now. Um, they have uh, protection laws for kids now. They don't like them flying through front windows. What was your parents' reaction to this? It sounded like they just took it in stride and Perhaps they had seen something before that themselves? Well, my father grew up on a farm, and he said he'd seen a lot of strange things, living out in a farm, no, almost no light pollution, so it was always a starry night out there, you know, especially if the weather was cooperative. And my mother was somewhat well-read on the topic matter. And uh, thereafter, uh, mother and child became very close on this one particular topic. Remember, this is about an age when mom and dad are stupid, you know. And uh, we, 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 suddenly I started bringing home books from the local library, and she would bring home books from the library, and we'd trade the books and, and tell stories about the things. And one of the ones that drew us together a lot was Eric Von Danigan's Chariot of the Gods, which came out in 68, about three years later. And uh, that really just baptized me in this stuff it really did um the next sighting that i had that i could speak of was uh in 1971 christmas eve 1971 in vietnam uh i was walking to the base chapel and i was facing west and uh, a friend of mine was with me and we were going down there for midnight mass and all of a sudden we see this thing streaking across the sky and we figured ah, it's a jet you know and then it stops and starts doing one of these little t- Tinkerbell things, and then pff, gone, you know. And uh, neither neither one of us had our mind on Midnight Mass when we got there, obviously. So, I you know, I never talked about that sighting until about 15 years ago, and I shared it with some Native American friends uh, one night around a campfire, and that was that's the first time I ever talked about it. What was their reaction to it? Because First Nations folks here in Canada, they get visited a lot. There are different areas where they live, and of course they're on reservations, and so I hate to use that word. They're on their own land. They seem very open. They're not afraid. They call them sky people, of course. But, you know, Bigfoot sightings, all these Things that we, I had mentioned before, Jane Goodall and things, all these, because this is the First Nations folks have come to her and said, you know, we spotted these things from all around the world, indigenous people. And they're not, she wasn't seeking out the stories. And this is the same story, again, when you come to UFOs. They have all these visitations, they call them sky people, and it just seems so natural for them. But us, not so much. What was their reaction when you told them that story? They actually took it very much in stride. And uh, one of them looked at me and said, my people's been dealing with them for 4,000 years. You know? So I, mean, that, I had a Cherokee medicine friend of mine down in D.C. Uh, he used to represent the Cherokee Nation in uh, federal court. Uh, whenever an issue came up, it was automatically a federal issue. You know, And uh, he told me one time, he was sitting there over a, excuse the expression, over a beer, and he says, well, if I told you our creation story, you'd probably think I was silly. And I said, try me. you know. And he told me, and he says, once upon a time, there was great lizards on this planet, and the, the great, the great uh, sky fathers uh, forced a rock out of the sky to kill them all. 
I said, yeah, okay, it works for me, you know. <laughs> and we developed a very deep friendship after that. It's incredible when you hear native lore and also oral traditions is a better word to put it, oral traditions, and how they match what we've come to know as concrete science. And I see this over and over and over again. The book is called UFO Sightings, Desk Reference, United States of America, 2001 to 2015. Cheryl Costa is our guest tonight, and it's also co-written by your partner, Linda Miller Costa. Can you tell us what days of the year host the most UFO reports? Well, funny, I just wrote my column on that. Um, okay, uh, okay. Weekdays, Monday through Thursday, it's relatively flat. I mean, there's sightings, but it's it's like a it's like a it's like a fence. You know, it's relatively flat. You get to Friday, it starts to tick up a little bit. It ticks up about three percent, and then Saturday night goes up seven to nine percent, depending upon where you are. And then Sunday goes back to around uh, 3 to 5% above the, the weekday level. Any explanation? Well, the weekday sightings are pretty much the people who are walking dogs or going out for a smoke or going out for a smoke and walking the dog. They're people out there day in, day out, no matter what. On the weekends, Friday night, especially Saturday night and Sunday, we're talking about leisure time. People have a chance to go outside. They're not at work or something like that. Uh, I, I should also qualify the people during the week. Um, there's also what, what I'm going to say is second shift factory workers go outside for a smoke. And and, and uh, I, I see an awful lot of reports like that. I went out on a break around twilight and saw this thing, you know, that kind of thing. I, I see that a lot as well. Um, so now, that's the days of the week. Okay, again, flat from Monday through about Thursday. When I say flat, I mean, it's a little bumpy. It's like... Uh, uh, 11 to 12 percent of the national stat statistic, and that ticks up to about 14 percent on Friday, 17, 18 percent on on Saturday, and then back down to about 14 percent on Sunday. Now that's the days of the week. What day of the year has the most sightings? Christmas Eve. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Okay, I just worked this number out. These numbers out a couple of days ago. Uh, the Fourth of July has 2,553 sightings. That's two percent of the nation's sightings for the 15-year period. Now, well, i got to ask you this then. Is that because everybody's outside watching the sky, specifically for fireworks, and all of a sudden they'll see these? Yeah. Is that the reason why? Or is it something more, maybe, perhaps, per, I don't know, um, maybe they just like the fireworks themselves, the ETs. I don't know. I'm just trying to make a joke here, but I'm trying to figure out why. Well, actually, it's it's both of those. Um, there's tons of people out there. You know, like I usually go to the ba uh, the local ball game, AAA team out here. I'll sit out there at the ball game, and on those particular uh, nights or certain other nights during the season, they'll do fireworks. And uh, so you've got three, 4,000 people in that stadium waiting waiting for the fireworks. So if it's a clear night, uh, who knows what you'll see up there in the sky. But the other thing that's kind of goofy about this, and I've talked to other UFOlogists about this, um, yeah, there might be a lot of mis mis misidentifications in that big number, but a lot of other UFOlogists say the UFOs seem to like these things. I'll give you a point in case. Uh, about a year, about two years ago on 4th of July, my spouse and I did the 4th of July thing at the ballpark, and we had just gotten out into our car, took our leisurely time. There's a huge traffic jam out there, and we're looking up at the sky. The fireworks are long gone. And what's parked up, up up there, way high altitude above the uh, above the stadium, but two fireballs, two fireball UFOs, and they were just loitering up there. And I've talked to other UFOologists that tell me that they seem to be intrigued by our fireworks. Is speculation as to why? Like, I don't know. Are they attracted to the light? I'm I'm just trying to think. Are they worried that they might be explosive? Because we've kind of established or. I've talked to other UFOologists on the show that basically UFOs started showing up when we started playing with nuclear weapons. Is there a fear, do you think, that they show up when they see these type of explosions happening in the sky, which would be in close proximity to them? I think they figured all of that out. You know, the fact that it's happening all over the country on a particular day or over a period of about three days, okay, depending upon well, how townships schedule their fireworks and things. And I think what the deal there is, 
is um, I'm going to use a term one of my llamas from Buddhist llamas told me. One day I was uh, duty driving my llama around town. It was around Christmas time. And he wanted to go around and look at, drive through neighborhoods and look at the Christmas lights. And I said, but this is a Christian holiday. He says, but it's still abundant offerings, you know, bright, abundant offerings, you know, joyous. And perhaps these guys see the same thing. They see the joyousness of the fireworks, especially they see that we're down there celebrating something. So perhaps they feel the vibe. Something yep. along those. You know, I'm going to have to check this out. Ours is July 1st. Our, it's not an Independence Day. We just call it Canada Day because we never really, well, we separated from Great Britain, but we're still a, a Commonwealth country. But I'll have to check that out. That's July 1st. So that's like three days apart. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and find out if the sightings peak or not in Canada on July 1st. Isn't that going to be interesting? Okay, we'll continue. You'd mentioned it depends where you are. What's the most visited state, if you will? Where are the most UFOs sighted in the United States? I'm going to guess Alaska because it's the more remote, less amount of ambient light. Actually, no. California is the number one state. Uh, 15,836 sightings in the 15-year period. The largest, uh, and what's intriguing is Los Angeles County, not the city of Los Angeles, but Los Angeles County had 3,212 sightings, and it's more than 40 individual states by themselves. How many sightings was there in a typical year? How many sightings is there in the United States? This is scaring Uh me now. Okay, well, okay, you got to understand, our numbers are going to make it look like they went from about 3,400 in 2001 to about uh, 14,000 uh, in 2015, okay, or 12, 14,000. I don't remember the exact number, but it's up in that neighborhood. Um, and it goes, it goes up like this, okay. But, but everybody looks at it and says, well, there's three tiers of movement on those increases. And um, I'm going to tell you that that let's say that number average is 12,000 a year, up in the last four or five years. What if I told you that it was 12,000 a year every year all the way back to 2001? Because what we've got here is what we call an artifact of reporting. More people were coming onto the Internet in early 2000s, and then um, that, that was the bigger cities, and then more rural areas started getting Comcast and Time Warner, and then by the middle 2000s, it's peaking up again. And then it starts creeping up one more time for the last six years of the uh, like 2010 through 2015. And it's kind of leveled off now. It's leveled off and going back into what we call the, uh, the UFO hump. About every, if you went back and looked at all the UFOs over, say, 40 years, uh, and it would only be in the 20s and 30s and maybe up to 50 sightings a year in the databases. Because... The way things were reported was somebody cut a clipping out of a newspaper, faxed it into some Joe out in Ohio who was collecting it, called his answering machine, faxed it in. As we got into the 1980s, people started having access to like CompuServe and America Online and all that kind of thing. So there started being more connectivity. By the by, the mid 90s, we all had a lot of us had dial-up, okay. And by the late 90s, that dial-up was becoming inter- internet. Okay, the dial-up was going was actually connecting to internet services, and so by the early to, by by 1999-2000 time frame, uh, the the numbers uh, start leveling off. Actually, if you can go much, I've had people come to me on the book and say, well, "Why didn't you go back 40 years?" I said, "Before about 1998, there wasn't more than a few hundred sightings reported, okay, per year. In fact, uh, it was uh, probably in the 50s and 10 uh, and hundreds." And then by uh, like 98, it was like up in the 500s. And 99, it was like up in the thousands, uh, low thousands. So we decided to check, take, you know, too many people in the UFO community up until now have written books on UFOs and everything. And it seemed to be always about a crash here, a crash there. And it was like a golden oldies radio station. The best crashes of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know. And, and, and that's what it was like. We decided to do a statistics book from 2001 when after 9-11, the government told us, report what you see. And we said, okay, let's take 21st century numbers. And we already knew about this artifact of reporting. So we said, we've got the best numbers right now. 
not in the past. You're absolutely right. It makes a huge difference. I know um, I do a lot of Kennedy shows, JFK shows, and I talked to some of the older researchers, and they said, you know, the problem was in those days, Brent, we used to have to snail mail all our information to each other. It would take weeks, whereas now we can do it email or, you know, text in the minutes of a flash. It can be analyzed and then sent back. The other thing that comes up, too, is Google search engine is so good. When you type something in, a bunch of things will come up that may never have been associated with each other before as well. So that's a big plus for anybody doing research. Now, talking about research, we had talked about the most visited state, if you will. Is there a most visited urban center? Um, and I say urban center because I, I just want to keep it into big, big cities. Now, right away, I would think that big cities, you're not going to see many because there's too many lights. There's too much ambient light. People are driving. They're looking forward, straight ahead, etc., etc. But is there one city in particular that stands out above the other? Yes, Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix lights? My goodness me. Well, yeah, okay. Now, in our book, uh, we quote the Phoenix area or the Maricopa County, okay, at 2019 sightings. But, but when we got refining the data after the book was published, when I was starting to work on the city's directory, this book here drills down. Nobody's ever done this before. It drills down to the state level and also down to over 3,000 counties in the United States. Nobody's ever gone down to the county resolution. Well, we're, we're right now taking it down one level now. We can actually go down. You pick a county anywhere in the United States. We can get You give me a state and a county, I can tell you what the municipal sightings are in that county now. Okay? Uh, we're not 100% yet, but we're almost there. Um, but I did a chart here a few weeks ago. In fact, Fox News even picked it up, the top 25 cities. Phoenix, Arizona is the top city, and the number is actually uh, more like a, a 2553, something like that. Because what happened was there was another 500 sightings in the database. Um, the people who spelled Phoenix, some of them spelled it with a P-H-O-E versus an E-O type of thing and, and it meant that we lost 500 of them because of that spelling and when we corrected that it it uh it upped the number when we do a, a, re, a revision on this book uh you know version two uh it will have that correction in it and then we're going to come out with a city's directory at this rate sometime next year maybe uh, maybe late next year let's talk about what your source for this information was as well where did you go for your sources okay i downloaded the uh National UFO Reporting Center's state-by-state uh, -state data. Okay, I, I, we, we actually, when we planned to do it, we'd done New York State because I write a column for New York State. And uh, a bunch of New York State researchers looked at it and said, wait a minute, we didn't know about a cluster here. We didn't know about a cluster there. We didn't know Rochester, New York has almost as many sightings as Buffalo, New York. We knew Buffalo had lots of sightings. You know, we knew about the Lake Erie effect. You got to tell us what the Lake Erie effect is now, because you're scaring me. Because you know I live right on Lake Ontario. Just saying, <laughs> as I look at the window and in the sky. Okay, Lake Erie effect. Everybody in upstate New York knew, and a lot of other people knew, uh, around Lake Erie and the Niagara frontier. Lots of sightings. Lots of sightings for years. Okay, and that was easy to look up. What nobody realized was until you put county data with it. Uh, Monroe County, New York, which is essentially the Rochester area, had almost as many sightings as Erie County did, and uh, in the 250 range kind of thing. And I showed it to a number of New York State researchers, and they're saying, well, "God, we always thought there was a base under, you know, a UFO base under Lake uh, Lake Erie. Maybe there's one under Lake Ontario." And they're, you know, I was watching some Canadian television some time back on on Netflix. And they were one of the shows was set in the 1890s. It was a detective series, and they talked about the fact that they, they they wondered if there was a civilization that lived under Lake Ontario. This is in the 1890s. Absolutely, because I know the MUFON director for Ontario. We've talked about this many times on the show, Michel Deschamps, folks. You can find his shows in the archive. Absolutely, there's a lot of activity along Lake Ontario, especially underneath Lake Ontario. People see lights all the time, and um, there's lots of sightings that are in and around Kingston. If you're watching this in Kingston right now on TV, there's plenty of sightings right here. 
you know, Kingston has a lot of sightings. And is water a big part of that? Michelle told me it was. We were up in Sudbury at the time, and Sudbury has lakes all through the city. And I know Syracuse does as well, too. Is there something about the water that's attracting them? I, I got asked that question after we got the book released. And I took from the top of St. Lawrence County, up, up on the St. Lawrence, and followed down every county across Lake Ontario, down down to the center part of Lake Erie, which would be Chautauqua County down in New York. So I, I covered that whole range, and it was 19% of the sightings for New York State. Then I went to Lake Champlain and followed it down the Hudson Valley, did not count Long Island, just followed it down Hudson Valley to the Atlantic, and it was 32% of New York State sightings. So 52% of the sightings for New York State were on those two waterways. And then if you wanted to throw another little cluster, it wasn't obvious by looking at any one of the individual Finger Lakes, but if you clustered the entire Finger Lakes region together and looked at them as a cluster, uh, it added another uh, 15 or 20%. You know, I'm thinking Lake Champlain's a deep water lake too, as well as well as uh, uh, Ramsey Lake up in Sudbury and Lake Ontario as well. And you got to think, if you're visiting another planet and you want to be stealthy or somewhat stealthy, where are you going to go? You've got to, you know, that people have to breathe, so they're going to be on top of the water. So you would go submerge yourself. I'm thinking it would make perfect sense. Especially if they're in an airtight vehicle, they could just go sh sit down there. I mean, th then there's Shag Harbor and all that, sightings. And Does this make sense to you? Do, do you think that's part of it, too, as well? Yes, I do. And um, uh, I've heard some interesting stories. Most of them came out of Canada by, by the Canadian Naval Services and that type of thing, and at the Canadian Coast Guard chasing USOs, the under undersea uh, things, uh, up the St. Lawrence, all the way out to uh, all the way out to the uh, the ocean, and uh, uh, I don't remember the exact incident, but I remember reading several incidents like that. There's a page a page there in the early narrative sections of the book that's got like the United States broken down into map areas, and those map areas are census maps. I decided since we were trying to make this book like a look like a government report, uh, there you go, yeah. And then if you go to the next page over, there you go, one more page, there you go. And, well, actually, it's actually one more page over than that. But the, the bottom line, go more, one more, there you go, I think you'll have it. There you go. Now you've got a breakdown of all those regional areas as the Census Department measures them, okay? What I noticed when you looked at the central part of the United States all the states were actually touching the Great Lakes, had sightings uh, of thousands or more thousands uh, or many thousands of sightings, moved two states away, and the sightings fall off into the low hundreds. What I'm impressed with is because you've done this county by county by county, is there any way that we can track, you know, like air airplanes, commercial airplanes, I'm thinking, this is all off the top of my head, I'm just trying to draw analogies, commercial airplanes always fly the same basic route wherever they're going, a highway in the sky, they call it. Do you think there could be such a thing for these UFOs that we could track them and see where they begin, they emanate, and then where they end? Something along those lines? Because this is important information. Okay, in, in uh, aeronautical terms, those are called Victor routes, okay? And um, they can be looked up. If you look up Victor routes on on the internet, you can get actually uh, you'll you can actually go to it on uh, the FAA sites and see where all the Victor routes are. Okay. Uh, also, if you have something like a flight simulator, Mike uh, Rankersroth flight simulator type of thing, you can actually pull up the Victor routes on that. Uh, I've had people ask me why didn't I compare these sightings to this. Uh, to the Victor routes, unfortunately, most of the sightings that are in the national databases are done by lay people and they're not trained observers they don't know what to write down uh, most of the time the average sighting is like a sentence maybe two sentences we saw this bright light come out of the east and then uh, then silently disappear you know wow and, and that's about all you get sometimes sometimes you get a page worth of narrative and i love those those are juicy i love reading those but the, the uh, but majority of these sighting 
write-ups are very, very scant. Okay, so it, we, it's uh, be very hard to track them to this. Now, something we are doing. Uh, there have been a number of books out there for years, and I'm going to call these New Age UFO books. Okay? Um, there was this one theory out there that, uh, okay, well, let's see. One, there was a theory out there called the John Keel's theory. Uh, John Keel wrote the M- Mothman Prophecy. Okay? Okay. He, he he had a few hundred sightings, maybe a thousand sightings back in the, uh, he had cards, you know, uh, data cards on them back in the late 60s, early 70s. He had a professor at a university out in uh, Colorado run them through a big old IBM 360. And they came up with the majority of the sightings were on Wednesday. And, and it, hence it spawned a, a phenomena called the Wednesday Phenomena. That was the day of the week all the UFOs were seen. Well, unfortunately, John suffered from a small data set. He had barely 1,000 sightings. I had 21,000. I mean, I'm sorry, I had 121,000. Okay, so our map about what the weekday sightings are is probably a little bit more reliable with the fact that it's statistically flat through the week and peaks up on the weekends. And it drove us to two things. And this is my, my spouse actually made this discovery when we were looking at the we put a little chart in the, in the things. And a lot of my UFO friends said, ah, that's a stupid chart. Why do you even put that in there? And it was UFOs in a state instead of just by year. We had it by month. OK. And everybody thought, well, that's dumb. Well, no, actually, when Linda was laying the book out after I'd done all the major calculations and charts and things, she said, have you noticed there's a difference with certain states? And I said, what do you mean? Well, see, we always assumed, like in New York State, all the sightings are in are uh, June, July, August. The chart goes up like this, okay? It goes up, you know, peaks in the summer months. Hey, everybody went, duh, summer months, nice weather, okay? Uh, uh, uh. You get down to the middle-level states around Maryland and go across the country, that starts flattening get down to deep south states is statistically flat across the board because it's temperate weather all the time so we came up with two theories one available leisure time and temperate weather yeah i think if you hit the nail on the head so to speak you know absolutely that makes perfect sense to me the whole water thing is sorry i scared out of my mind right now looking out because lake ontario is like right there <laughs> and a lot of freaky things happen around lake ontario trust me folks the jfk assassination the definitive book by brendan holland from inside the oval office to daily plaza first person witness accounts order yours right now nightfrightshow.com the book is called UFO Sightings Desk Reference, United States of America, 2001 to 2015 by Cheryl Costa and Linda Miller Costa. Cheryl Costa is our guest tonight. She has a wonderful, wonderful online um, blog, I guess you could call it, but it's for the SyracuseNewTimes.com. It's called New York Skies for Syracuse New Times. Dot com and it, it's just great it she deals with uh, sightings in and around the country primarily in New York and uh, it's nice to see that mainstream media has picked this up finally you know we've been fighting and fighting and fighting now you mentioned something early on that has always annoyed me it comes back to mainstream here we are in a post 9-11 world and you hit the nail on the head again we're being told to report everything quote-unquote, unusual or out-of-the-norm. And all of a sudden, we see these things flourishing in the sky, and there's more now, it seems, than ever for various reasons, and we're reporting them, and we're still being ostracized. People are still afraid to be called a quack or a kook or whatever. How do we combat that? I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. Uh, my paper now, after four years, uh, they did a uh, cover story on me last, uh, about four weeks ago, uh, and it was a three-page cover story inside, you know, and uh, uh, the only thing I looked at that picture and said, God, I need to lose another 30 pounds, but, you know, <laughs> but um, the thing is, uh, I got a lot of interest on it because uh, they showed pictures of me uh, plotting the UFO sightings on a county level map in in New York State for my county, you know, and I got a lot of call, local calls. Wow, can you tell us where they are in our county, you know? Uh, but the, 
you know, it's funny. I'll give you an example. I gave a copy. I went to both of my state senators, okay, and I sent them a four-page, well-thought-out, well-edited letter stapled to my book, and I sent it to each of them with the same letter and said, this really deserves to be looked at. Could you possibly have a congressional inquiry on this topic matter, you know? And didn't hear anything, didn't hear anything. Usually when you're righteous senator, usually within about six weeks you get a nice letter. Yeah, 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 we got it. We're, we're looking at it, you know. Didn't hear anything. So I called one of the senator's offices and told them. And they did some checking. and said, no, we don't know anything about that. And I said, uh, they said, but we lose letters all the time. Can you send me the letter? And I said, yeah. And I sent him over the PDF of the letter. And he said, okay. But we do lose letters all the time. I said, yeah, I find that hard to believe. I said, I said this letter had a two-and-a-half-pound book staple to it. Okay, so you're telling me the congressional mail office is not secure, that a tax-paying citizen can't get a letter to their elected representative is what you're telling me? Oh, they didn't like that. Uh, Let me tell you about the JFK files. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Please continue. (laughs) So what it's come down to is they had uh, the one senator's office had me bring, I hand-walked a copy over to them, and they sent it down in their mail pouch. The other senator's office won't even take my phone calls now. Okay? Because I'm just that nut that works for the newspaper who reports all the silly stuff. You know? And that's, you know, I'm sick of being, every time I come across the border to go over to Brockville to have a nice meal over there in Canada, uh, I, I, I get run through the ringer. That you're frisking little old ladies, but I can't get them to look at the freaking sky and look at my numbers? You're more than welcome anytime, my friend. Okay, so there is a problem. There's no, without question, do they not realize that Jimmy Carter has seen one, uh, Ronald Reagan followed one in his airplane, Ford came out and said that he wanted more reporting done, that the people were not getting the correct amount of information, even Hillary Clinton said that she was going to release the leftover, whatever's left in the archives, the UFO files, and there might be something more to it than we're aware of. And yet, mainstream, and I'm going to put the government as well, just keeps ostracizing people and ostracizing people. I personally think it's part of the human experience to see these things, and I don't see where the threat is. Do you think this threatens them? It's a national security issue or something that they, oh my goodness, there's something there we can't explain or control, so we better just pretend that it doesn't exist? Let's go back to Orson Welles' radio show back in the late 30s. Okay, Scared the snot out of people. Now, the people that got the heck scared out of them weren't listening to the beginning of the program and realized it was a radio play. And then these other people turned off some other thing because it was an opera or something like that, and they turned it off, and they swing across the dial, and all of a sudden they come in to something that sounds like a news actuality, a flash, you know, breaking news kind of thing, and it sounds like New Jersey's being leveled by Martians, okay? Of course it scared everybody. Now, the thing is, we've had a lot of time, back in the 1940s and late 50s, and I, I wrote this in a college paper a couple of years ago, um, the occupants of the of the UFOs and flying saucers are always little slimy bug-eyed monsters of some sort. Okay, these days aliens in our fiction are most are are among our most adored uh, uh, people. Luke Skywalker, Doctor Who, you know, Mister Spock, you know, uh, uh, little gray aliens adorn our greeting cards, you know. I don't think it's going to be a big deal if they reveal it correctly. Now, there's that, that they say, okay, there was, a, there was a, a poll out in 2012 by National Geographic, okay? 36% of Americans believed in it, no problem. 46% were, like, on the fence, so that was about 70-some-odd percent, and about 17% no way, okay? All right, it says 17% that are going to be out shooting themselves, jumping off bridges, things like this. They're going to be terrified. I did a poll on my blog once, you know, what if, you know, President, I think it was back during Obama, I said, what if Obama comes out and tells us one of these days that these things are real and we got treaties with them and all this kind of stuff? And the, the biggest question I had back, are they going to eat us? That was the biggest question people ask. Well, now I'm going to go on a diet. That's all I got to say. 
that was the biggest question. You know, not if they're peaceful. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, how can we benefit mankind and their kind together? Nothing uh, are they going to eat us. So complete paranoia. If they were to come down and land on your front lawn, uh, how would you greet them? Just out of curiosity. Well, it's my Buddhist training. Open hands like a like a like an uh, like an open bowl. You know, I'm here to greet you. And if they chose you to be their liaison, for how would you approach the government if they wanted the government wanted proof, but they weren't willing to come forward? Uh, the aliens, uh, the ETs, if they weren't willing to physically come forward, but they wanted proof that you've been in contact. Is there any way around that, that we could get them in touch with them or something along those lines? They already know. Well, some elements of the government already know this stuff, okay? Uh, the problem is is that it's what they call the deep state guys know about this stuff, and the public guys, uh, they're cons the elected representatives are considered temps, when you think about it. They're temps. Presidents are temps. Okay, and uh, so they've been sort of out of the loop for a really long time, and uh, the key people that actually run everything, what I'm going to say, the proverbial bureaucrats in the deep state, uh, they some of them have known for quite some time what's going on, and it's not going to be a big surprise to them. I think we're actually very close to disclosure, and I'll give you one more step to it. And you're going to hear it first from me. I don't know the details i don't know who's doing it but i think i think within the month you're going maybe within the next couple of weeks you're going to see a really cool article by the new york times that's going to show just how deep the government's fingers are into this thing we're going to have to come back on when it hits and then we'll discuss it fair enough right okay Fine. i want to go a little bit off the beaten track here i'm sure. just looking at the anywhere time. you want to go Okay, you had mentioned John Ventry. He's the host of Hangar One, and he's been on the show a couple of times. Wonderful guy. He believes that some of the ETs may be demons. I know this is a little bit off the beaten track, but I figured I'd pose the question to you. How do you feel about the ETs? Do you think John might be on to something here, that they could be demons type of extraterrestrials? Well, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this with the greatest respect. Um, there's every flavor, you know, like we've got every flavor of, of, of uh, people and orientations on this planet. And if somebody came here uh, 70 years ago and met the Nazis they, and, and thought that they represented all of us, you know, you know it's all a matter who you meet first, so to speak. Um, I, okay, I'm going to say this politely and with the greatest respect. John is a little on the evangelical side, and and uh, there's a there's an element in the evangelical side of things that tend to see thing, tend to see certain factions of the, those guys as uh, as demons, you know. And uh, I I think that we have to be very careful because we already have enough prejudices. That right now, uh, we have a hard enough time accepting gay people, let alone let alone accepting ETs. It's changing, though. We both grew up in a time uh, when they used to lynch black. Americans, black people, and we fought for civil rights, and it's changing. Uh, in Canada now, we've had gay marriage, I'm proud to say, for well over 10 years, a decade. We were the first country anywhere to introduce gays into uh, the military, and now it transgenders time, and that's happening now, too. I think once we break down stereotypes, folks, and look at an individual as an individual and not a label, maybe we could be on to something. Maybe. Let's hope we can do that together. Let's continue about the UFO. What frightens me is people that are being abducted. I, it's kind of outside the box right now, I know, but uh, I wanted to talk to you about this. People that are being abducted without their permission. And that, you know, it, it, it reminds me of somebody being raped or, you know, somebody not in control of themselves and not that somebody is taking advantage of their bodies, their minds, etc. Your perspective? Okay, I used to believe the, um, you know, the upper cable channels. You see all those shows about everybody getting probed and everything. And uh, I, I heard all those stories. And 
uh, one of the international UFO congresses. In fact, I'm speaking. I spoke in uh, 2015 uh, or 2014, and I'm going to be speaking this February at the International UFO Congress. And um, I went to the psychologist who hosted a morning meeting. It was before all this stuff gets going in the morning, and it was sort of like a morning AA meeting for for abductees. Okay, and um, I ask them for they don't allow press to go. And I went to her and I said, look, I'll leave my press credentials upstairs. I just want to come as an observer, respectful. I want to understand. I won't write about anybody in there. She's okay. So I came in expecting to meet 35, maybe 40 people crying in their coffee because they got probed. There was 175 people in there, and it was they were up, they were joyous. We had been picked, we were touched. These are wonderful. These are wonderful. Was a wonderful experience, and it had all the energy of a tent revival. That's the story we're not hearing in television. All we hear are the probing stories. We don't hear about the fact that we're having people who are the people who are going to blow the lid off this thing. Is if we can get all of the experiencers, as they're called now, uh, if we can get them. To really come out of the closet on mass and say, I was touched. The ancient alien thing is all over the television right now. I'm not just talking about the show, but the whole idea that ancient aliens created us, if you will. Uh-huh. And we alluded at the beginning of the show to how First Nations folks, Native folks, believe that there was lizards here. And then the sky people created a big rock to get rid of the lizards. Do you think, as an extension of that story, do you think there could have been some genetic manipulation to create us somehow with an existing being that was already here? Uh, This is personal opinion, not a professional one, but personal opinion, I have believed that for a long, long time. Couldn't they have done a better job? (laughs) I mean, look at our species. You're, You're a veteran. Thank God you are, you know? But do we have to keep shooting each other's butts off? Is there not a better way? You know, was this implanted in us, do you think, to be this aggressive? Uh, some kind of uh, species taking care of ourselves so our population doesn't grow? I don't know. Um, if, if, let's say God, the God on Mount Sinai was an ET, and he gave Moses the Ten Commandments, if everybody followed them to the letter, we probably would have a pretty different world than we have now. But no, we're stealing, we're killing, we're coveting other people's, uh, other people's wives, other people's husbands. Um, we do everything in contrary to the Ten Commandments. So, you know, uh, we were given a list of rules. Easy. Ten steps. Can you follow these? You know, We're going to have to start to wrap up now. I'm just looking at the time. Now, if... ETs don't scare you, abductions don't scare you, or maybe they do. What frightens you the most in this world right now? Nuclear war. Right now, I'm more concerned about nuclear war now than I was in the 1980s when we had the clock up there almost at midnight. I am paranoid as heck about it. Especially the fact that, um, and I'm going to say it, I'm sorry, I have a First Amendment right to speak my mind. I think we have a madman in the White House, and he's rattling sabers. He's completely emasculated our our um, uh, State Department of all the trained diplomats. Anybody knows how to make peace. And uh, I'm, I mean, look what he did this in his last day or so, what they're doing in Jerusalem. And that, if that doesn't cause a war, nothing will, you know. So uh, I'm really, really, really concerned that uh, uh, some, somebody not on top of it is going to set something like this off. And I, I really dread that idea. Then we go back to Roswell when we were just testing them, not using them. Do you think that there would be an inter- this would be a window of inter- intervention for the ETs to come down and say, hey, wait a second. You know, my buddy Michel Deschamps, I always talk about, the uh, Ontario MUFON director says that, they're scared because now the kids have the matches. Do you think there would be an intervention? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think there would be um, for two reasons. One, uh, uh, I don't want to say this. They perked, and there's a lot of data on this, uh, a lot of docu- government documents show that uh, they were 
turning off our missile silos out in Montana and things like this, okay? Uh, Bob Hastings did a really, really good book on it. And if there was ever a smoking gun for me, when I saw those slides, I said, this is real, you know? But um, funny thing is, is that uh, they've had some very unusual high amounts of sightings in North Korea lately. And we already know from something that happened back in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, we launched an Atlas rocket off the west coast out of Vandenberg Air Force Base. It had a dummy warhead on it. A UFO came into the picture frame with the high-speed film they were shooting and literally lasered off the warhead so it fell off the, off the rocket. You mentioned nuclear weapons going offline at the Maelstrom Air Force Base, but that's in the archives as well, 1967, I believe. And all of a sudden, he's sitting there, and he's responsible for the launch 60 feet below the ground of nuclear weapons, and they go offline. And there's a proximity alert that something's coming down the silo. Tell me that wouldn't scare you to death. I'm going to thank you very, very much for coming on the show tonight. We're going to have to wrap up. The book is called UFO Sightings Desk Reference, United States of America, 2001 to 2015 by Cheryl Costa and her spouse, Linda Miller Costa. I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and a Happy Hanukkah and a Salam Aleikum and Happy Noruz. <laughs> There's a few I've missed, but you get the idea. Be nice to each other, please, people. For once, let's have a nice, peaceful Christmas, is what, what, what was intended all along. Thank you very much, Cheryl, for coming on the show. Thank you for this book, Do Not Be a Stranger. I can't do it with this hand. <laughs> That's the best I can do. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm Brett Holland. We'll see you all next time. Thank you again, Cheryl. <laughs>